Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. It's a wonderfully intimate affair this month. Richard is off meeting an Apollo mission controller, so it's an opportunity for me to pay tribute to two women who've been a part of aerospace history for over 50 years, but are perhaps not at the forefront in everyone's memories. You may be familiar with this voice, though, as we take a madcap look down memory lane, which includes meeting astronaut Eileen Collins, cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova, and some unexpected non-space-related celebrities. I never got his card. I don't remember his name. And we shook hands, and he gave me this wonderful piece, this coin. And when I got into the um, limousine... I showed it to the driver, and he says, you don't know who you just met, do you? I said, no, sir, I do not. He said, that's the man that killed bin Laden. Yes, that's the unmistakable voice of Mercury 30 member Wally Funk. More from her later. Our first guest, though, is quite literally a hidden figure, since she was one of the many African-American women featured in the best-selling book, Hidden Figures. She worked at the American Space Agency at a time when feminism and civil rights movements had yet to fight for freedoms and equal opportunities that are completely accepted today. When Christine Dardenne was young, she was told by several people that when it came to thinking about a career, she should become a teacher. Instead, she continued studying her beloved maths and ended up working at NASA for 40 years, becoming one of the world's experts on sonic booms. Well, I met up with Christine a few weeks ago in Washington after she gave a talk at the US National Academy of Sciences to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the university's Space Research Association. My name is Christine Darden and I'm a retired researcher and leader from NASA Langley Research Center. Could you begin by explaining how did you go from being a mathematics teacher who loved maths Mm -hmm. to working at NASA? Well, I found out that I really liked the connection between the mathematics and the real world. That's why I got the master's in applied math. Actually, what really happened is when I was graduating with my master's, I applied to two colleges And then when I went by the placement office, she told me NASA had been there. I got offers from all three, the two colleges and NASA. NASA offered 9,000. Both of the colleges offered 4,000. My husband said, take the (laughs) 9,000. That was that was the reason. That was that was, that was really because I, I think I would have enjoyed teaching at the college level also. Yeah. But he did actually 
say that because the, because the salary was higher. Now, your first job was as a data analyst, which is often referred to as a, a computer. Yes, yes. So they at certain grade levels, they, they called you a mathematician. I was a data analyst because I had the master's and I was hired as a nine. There were math aides in the office also, the people who did the figures or read the slide, read the uh, film from the wind tunnel test and things. Uh, some of, they were just high school graduates. And, so you were way above that. Well, yeah, but we all worked in the same office. Everybody was called a computer in there. What was your role as a computer? The engineers brought in equations, and, and just like they did to everybody else, but they would very often say, uh, I'd like for you to evaluate this co- equation for these 20 independent variables here. And I would I wrote computer programs to do that because I had a mechanical calculator on my desk, but I had learned to program in graduate school, so I wrote a program that did the job that they were asking for. I might have had to do a few few figures of plotting some of the data from some of those results. I went to NASA in 67, two years before we walked on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So what was the relationship like between you and other people at that time? Because obviously the, the film Hidden Figures, you, you appear in the, in the book, the film hones it down to just three main characters, yes. and that does sort of make a, obviously make an obvious reference to what the women experienced in terms of any racism at the time or treatment. Did you experience the I, same? I, I did not really experience the racism. I, I really thought the the biggest racism was the assignment of the job. You know, the question I asked, that's what I thought was, you know, kind of... So was that more sexism then? That was, that was yeah, gender, re- re- sexism. There was a Jewish girl that worked uh, with me when we were working Sonic Boom. And there, uh, one day we went into one of the contractor's offices, and he was in a really, really bad mood. And he had taken his hand and just knocked everything off his desk on the floor. Well, we were standing there looking at him. And he looked at the two of us and said, the only reason either one of you are here is because of affirmative action. So that that, that would have been the only other time I, I heard something that overt. But I just said to him, well, you know, that might be why we're here, but we sure have done our job since we've been here and left it at that. And you mentioned Sonic Boom then, and that's an area that um, you worked in as, a, as, as an, engi- as an, an engineer. engineer. Yes. Could you explain what it was that you actually did in terms of your research in relation to a Sonic Boom? Okay. In I, simple language. <laughs> in simple language. I was given a technical paper that had been written by a couple of professors at Cornell University on their ideas of how to generate the equivalent area of an airplane that would have a lower Sonic Boom. And so I took their paper and made a couple of modifications to it, but wrote a computer program for that, for those conditions, such that if you gave it the length, weight, altitude, and Mach number of the airplane, what would come out would be this description of the equivalent area. And then what we had to do is design the airplane that fit that area. And that was iterative. It took, you know, you'd 
design it and then have to evaluate the area due to to uh, volume and the area due to lift and add them together and compare it to what you were trying to match and and then say well now what do I change to get closer and closer so it took a few months to do that and lots of working in wind tunnels I see and well after we got it to match the target area we sent the design that met that and had it built into a model yes and then tested it and we and we did even the first test we got we didn't get a big end wave that a military airplane it would be a big jump and then an end what this do you mean by a, N? it looked like an end oh, the, the, the the sonic boom comes from this instantaneous shock change in pressure that when i explain it to children i said okay you've got air pressure on your ear if I blow up a balloon, I'm putting more molecules in the balloon. The pressure in the balloon is getting higher than the pressure outside. If I pop that balloon, there's a shock wave set up going out in all directions at the speed of sound. And when that shock wave gets to your ear, the pressure on your ear jumps instantaneously from what it was in the room to what it was in the balloon. And that's the pop you hear. That's what a sonic boom actually does also. There's a high pr- higher pressure in this cone on the top of the airplane. And if you're on the ground and the, the cone is, has not intersected the ground where you are, but it's behind you, when that airplane moves forward, and have you ever heard a sonic boom? I don't think I have. And Because when you go out, the tendency is to look up for the airplane, but the airplane is not up there. The airplane is way down there. <laughs> and so you have to look there, and there's this cone attached to it. And so when that airplane moves, it draw, draws the intersection of the cone with the ground over you, and you get the higher pressure that's in that cone that's on the airplane. And that's the sonic boom. That's the ground, you know, the level that it affects on the ground and everything. It's pretty wide. Did you spend your entire time at NASA working on sonic booms, or where did you end up working with the Apollo missions or in the space side of um, things? I was assigned to the re-entry physics branch when I was hired, and it was those engineers who had calculated the speed and the angle at which a space vehicle had to come back into the atmosphere so that it wouldn't burn up, so that it wouldn't bounce and go back out into space. So I did that when I first got there. I didn't really do those calculations because they had Apollo had really started. Apollo 1 had already burnt up before I got there. And so I worked on and off for about 25 years with the sonic boom. Now, some of it was designing wing of, wings of supersonic airplanes because some our funding went away for a while. They talked about how, how expensive things were. When we got to the moon and Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, uh, I think President... Nixon cut the budget. He says, okay, we got to the moon. And so they actually, I think, eliminated a couple of the Apollo flights. So during that period, I, um, I, I worked on supersonics pretty much all that time. And if it wasn't sonic boom, it was actually designing the flaps on a supersonic airplane and things like that. And then I went into management. I uh, actually headed three offices there. One, one was a technical office, which... Um, Actually, computational fluid dynamics came through there. Air traffic management came through there. Engine work came through there. And I think there were at least one or two other areas. They were run by other centers, but we were doing the work at Langley. So it was the aero performing work. 
I headed that office for a while. I was assistant director of the Center for Strategic Planning for two or three years. It's an incredible career. Yeah, and then I was I was the head of strategic communications and education, which was all the public affairs, all the legislative affairs, and the education office. That was the last job I had. How did you feel about the film, Hidden Figures, and the book as well? Are you pleased that the attention has been brought to women uh, doing these jobs and doing science jobs and engineering and mathematics? Well, I, think that's, I think it's good for our children when they said we didn't know women did that kind of work. We didn't even know that was a possibility. So I think from that perspective, it's good for them to know because, you know, most parents try to expose their children to different careers so they will know this is an option for you. If you like this, maybe this is the way you would like to go. And you, we're hearing from our children, well, we didn't know we could even think that way, you know, and and so that, that uh, kind of handicaps them. I was very surprised that the book took off. Um, the, 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 the movie, of course, helped the book. When I first saw the movie, and we saw it about a month before it officially came out, I just pretended I didn't know anybody there, and I just watched the movie, and I thought it was a good movie. The script writer did a good job. It was, it was very good. And the book was good. Ma- Margot and I would meet... Uh, when she That's would, Margot Lee Shetterly who wrote Shetterly, it. Who yeah. wrote the book, yeah. was living in Mexico. And so she would come back to Hampton every month or so to see her parents. And, and we would get together for lunch when she would come. And so we would talk a lot about uh, the book and everything. And one of the books we talked about was a book called The Warmth of Other Sons. And that was a story of the migration of the blacks in this country to the north. And the author did that through three people, you know, somebody who lived in Florida, somebody who lived in Mississippi, and somebody who lived in uh, Louisiana. What was going on where they lived, why they went where they did in the north, was it a relative was up there, was it the railroad track, or was it, you know, a bus, just a bus line or something, why they went there, and then what they encountered when they got there. So there was a lot of history in the book, and you learned a lot of history just reading that. And Margot kind of took some of those ideas and put a lot of history in the book. You know, it's not in the movie, but uh, she did a lot of that in the book, and she's a good writer. Her mother was an English professor, is an English, or she was, at Hampton University. And she said she used to help them with their writing and everything. So she's a good writer. Obviously, you joined slightly later than the the three main characters that were in the book. Did you know them at all? I did know them. Uh, I was in the next generation. All of those three main characters had children in my class. Catherine's daughter was my classmate, Mary Jackson's niece was my classmate, and Dorothy Bond's son was my classmate. As in, in school? In, in college, yes. Yeah, so, so I was in the next generation, sort of. Dorothy Bond went there 25 years before I did, and Catherine and Mary were about 15 years ahead of me before I That's before sort of I great, though, that um, it shows the importance of a role model in terms of parents that you were with their children as well, doesn't it? It's that whole thing of seeing something and yeah. being something. Absolutely. I, th- I, think, I think the exposure is good, you know, that for students to know that this is something 
that I could do. And then you start thinking about it. You didn't hear me talk, did you? I did. You yeah. did. It was that great. P to the P to the fourth power. It actually thinking through that process of how do I get there, it actually helped me make decisions when I ran into problems. And I explained the P to the fourth power because it's it was, P one, P two, P three. Yeah, the P to the fourth power of getting to a career. Well, if you've got a, a job, a dream job that you want to get to then perceive of yourself in that job. So I had perceived of myself as a mathematician. I had even thought about an actuary. You know, that w- I think that would have worked. So perceive of yourself in the job and then say, well, what do I have to go- do to get to a job like that? Well, I missed a lot of math, so I needed to take a lot of math. Then start doing it. Well, when I decided to take all my electives as higher math courses, I was kind of following that. And then persist, keep going. I think I was being a go-getter when I did that, too. And I told somebody else, the Girl Scouts had a code that they wanted their girls to have these characteristics. Be a go-getter. Be an innovator. Solve problems when you run into them. Don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Take a risk sometimes. Well, when I went to the director and said, I'd like to know why you are not assigning any women to the engineering area who have the background, same background as the men, and uh, so that was a risk, and I could have gotten fired. But I, I had thought through that and said, well, I'll go teach if I get fired. But uh, I'm going to, you know, speak up about this and be a leader for the Girl Scouts. But that persistence is very important to keep going and to solve your problems when you run into them. Drive 80 miles at night by yourself and stick your head out the window so you won't go to sleep. But keep going so you don't quit that class you're in. That's wonderful. Thank you so much You're for your welcome. time. I really appreciate it. And congratulations. Have you, I know, have you retired or are you still? I, I have, I've been retired 12 years. Yeah, but it sounds like your brain is still completely, you know, on fire, that you must be still doing stuff, still doing maths. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm giving these talks to all these people, you know, and so that has that has sort of kept me up. And then I was on a committee of people going into the Hall of Honor at NASA so we wrote their bios of what they did, and I have given a couple of talks on what they did. So I, I have kind of stayed in touch with Where are you based now? I still live in Hampton, Virginia. It's 175 miles. <laughs> I drove up here this morning. <laughs> Hidden figure, Christine Darden, who continues to give talks and inspire others into studying maths and aiming high. You're listening to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef. Take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. Do check us out on Facebook and Twitter as you'll always find photographs of those we've interviewed as well as other random, interesting and fun stuff that's space related, whether it's inside a spacecraft clean room, at a launch, rocket themed stamps, that's a particular favourite of mine, or waste paper bins. Thank you, SSTL. Now for our second Hidden History themed interview. Although, to be fair, Wally Funk's story is perhaps not so hidden 
as much. In case you need reminding, Wally is one of the so-called Mercury 13, the 13 female pilots who between 1960 and 61 passed the same astronaut tests as the Mercury 7 but never got the chance to go into space. Now as you hopefully know if you've listened to this podcast before, I wrote Wally Funk's Race for Space recently about the Mercury 13 story but mostly about Wally's life and her continued attempt to get into space, this time with Virgin Galactic. The book is out now in the US and the UK, with the UK paperback being released in a few weeks' time. To celebrate that, and with a little Space Boffins exclusive here, here's an insight into just a portion of her incredible life through some of the mementos in her home in Grapevine, Texas. It's filled with stuff related to space and flying, since it was Wally's career as a pilot that got her chosen to do the Mercury 13 test in the first place. But I'm going to start here with when I spotted a pack of cards with the letters I-W-A-S-M. I was some stands for International Women's Air and Space Museum, which is held in um, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. And they have pictures of all the women that have been somebody in the world of aviation, like Fran Barra and uh, the Wasps and uh, Force of Friendship, Amelia Earhart's Place, Edna Gardner-White. Let's see, we've got uh, some of the astronauts, Nicole Malachowski, myself, and Jerry Cobb. You're the Seven of Diamonds. Seven of Diamonds. (laughs) It says, one of the Mercury 13 first female FAA inspector and NTSB investigator. And you know what? I never even even asked. I never put an application in. I went into a guy's office, FAA office, Mr. Glenn, and he says, Wally, I want you to sit down. I want to interview you. And at the end, he says, I want you to start on Monday. And that's how I became... uh, FAA inspector, first one. Then I was that I was with the FAA for five years, and I wrote all the reports up myself. I didn't have the secretaries do it. And NTSB says, Wally, we think we want you over with us to go out in the field and investigate airplane crashes. And I've done over 450 accident, accident investigations in California, Nevada, Arizona, and Hawaii. It was our area. 99s had their own logo, and I just happened to find this shirt. It's an old shirt. Uh, I was a 99 in 1955. What's a 99? A 99 is the National Organization for Women Pilots, started in 1929 by 99 charter members, and it's been going worldwide. We're 5,000 now. This is I, when I came back from Europe, I went to three years I went to 59 countries in my Volkswagen camper. And this is a picture of when my father told me, he says, you're you're pretty gregarious. I want you to, I was two years old. He says, I want you to sit on that suitcase till the train comes in. And I did it. I didn't get up and move because normally I'm always very curious about things. And this is how mother dressed me up with my cowboy hat, my Levi's, one, one pant legs in the boots and one out. And that's how I ran around in Taos. Uh, Actually, in my teenagers, I was in T-shirts and shorts. Then I bought my Rolls Royce, uh, and I was going to show you some more over there. 
and uh, it's a, a 40s series. The Brightwood is fantastic. It belonged to the Queen Mum, and I got it out of a uh, Pasadena estate, and I have a picture of the Queen Mum right here. She's sitting in another Rolls Royce, and I was able to get the ornament off of it, the lady, and I won eight times in California by showing it. I did all the work myself to make it very, very distinguishable. And then in the back when I sold it, I asked the man, can I have the decanter that the Queen, queen Mum um, drank out of? The liquid, this has never come off, the liquid was up to here. So since the 70s and 80s, this has, de has gone down. And I have her glasses that she used and so forth. Then this is a t-shirt, good golly it's Wally, that somebody made up for a convention. And uh, yeah, women fly. Wow, women fly. This, I gave this to mother and then when she passed away I framed it. And then these, these two other pictures are from when I was uh, teaching at uh, Fort Sill in uh, Oklahoma. And uh, it says here, no one teaches like a dame. I had great students. And then you turn around. This is a picture that NASA sent me of Eileen Collins and her crew took up my original 99 pin. That's a nine within a nine with a propeller. And uh, she took it up on STS-84 in uh, 1997. And that was just my most precious thing that part of me has been up there. Eileen Collins was the first woman to pilot and command the space shuttle and she paid tribute to the Mercury 13's history by inviting the surviving members to her launch. Incidentally, Jerry Cobb, who passed away recently and was the first woman to pass those tests, is also on that picture. It's hard to keep track of all of Wally's memorabilia because there's so much of it, so I definitely wasn't expecting to hear this particular story behind one of several commemorative medallions and coins on a coffee table. Whenever you go to a military base and they shake hands with you, they always have a medallion in their hands to give to you. Okay, this particular one is the biggest one I had. I was at um, Army Base at Nashville, Tennessee, and I spoke for two days to the men, and I said, you know, I need to thank the commandant. So they took me to his office. I never got his card. I don't remember his name. And we shook hands, and he gave me this wonderful piece, this coin, and it's about two inches across. And when I got into the um, limousine, I showed it to the driver, and he says, you don't know who you just met, do you? I said, no, sir, I do not. He said, that's the man that killed bin Laden. So he was there with uh, two other men and a dog when that happened. Okay, then we come over here to, I've been um, on the front cover of Oklahoma State twice and Texas uh, Magazine, and then we come to Valentina Tereshkova when I was there in... Could you explain how you met Valentina, would you say? Yes, Valentina, I've been to Russia three times, and the first time I met Valentina, 60s, when I was on my trip, they only let us see each other. I couldn't meet her because she was coming down, going up or something. Then I got to see her in, in the 80s. I made a speech, 
and I got to meet her, and then we saw each other again when I went in 2000, and I trained with the cosmonauts. So I have a very, very dear picture of she and I together. Could you explain why you did the cosmonaut training? Oh, the reason I wanted to do the cosmonaut training, I'd done everything in the United States. I had done all the three phases plus one more phase at USC, and I, I did so well as a young person because all the other girls were 20 years older than I. One of the other girls uh, that was supposedly with me didn't last two hours at Loveless. And then I found out out of 30-some, only 13 made it. With the guys, there were 100 and some guys that tried to take the test, only seven made it. So Loveless had a very strategic and hard thing. They did things to people that they thought that would be needed in space, which wasn't. Sticking uh, water in your ears that was only 10 degrees and making you go absolutely cuckoo. And then waiting an hour and doing it in the other ear. They don't do that anymore. All the x-rays, all the going up your body, down your body, through your body, all the needles, all the, you'll see it in all the tests that I took. So the cosmonaut training was very interesting in the fact they had one room and the guys took off their clothes over here to get checked out, and the girl and I was over here. There was no sex discrimination uh, in walls. It was no big deal for me. I, I didn't care. It was as long as they gave me all the tests that they needed, which were so much less than what uh, Dr. Loveless gave me. Then I got to do the parabolic several times. That's where you go up to 50,000, and then they dive down. And uh, I had practiced in a swimming pool, so I could do, I've done this twice, do all kinds of maneuvers. And then uh, the centrifuge test, which I excelled in because being an acrobatic pilot and my steerman, I could pull six Gs with no problem at all. Most people can't pull four Gs. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that when Sir Richard Branson has his sum of 700 people go up, they're not going to be able to take the G-forces of liftoff. So I know I could, and I, and I, just the other day, I did a loop and some really tight turns. I know I'm fine. Wally Funk. I think that may be wishful thinking about the G-forces to get her up Virgin Galactic's list into space, as you should only experience about 3G, but you can't blame her, can you? Wally Funk's Race of Space is out in paperback in the UK in June, and even more excitingly, Wally is coming to England. So do look out for some of the events she will be at with me alongside her, pretty much all of them. Um, She's got one at the National Space Museum in Leicester, uh, the London Science Museum. That's giving a sort of introduction to um, a sort of Apollo-themed film. And uh, both of us will be in conversation at uh, Foyle's Bookshop in Charing Cross Road in London. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed hearing from two women who, through talent ability and sheer persistence made a difference to women's history within the field of aerospace and are an inspiration to everyone. Next time, we should have a report on the new Apollo 11 film that's out as we near the 50th anniversary of the moon landings. Until then, thanks for listening.